Amazing grace, amazing love. His love is indeed the foundation of our lives. And uh, that's what we get together to celebrate. Uh, his, his love, it's too good, it's too good, it's too good. Now, one of the benefits of COVID was we started worshiping out here under this tent. Now, many of you know, it, it, we love it out here. And so we're in the process of uh, uh, getting a bigger tent and cleaning it up out here. And I think the city has asked us for a, uh, an analysis of people on here in parking places. We believe it's the last step. So you'll see even a little bigger tent out here. And we hope to make this even a little more comfortable. We have just uh, uh, connected with a search firm called Slingshot, so I'm going to ask you to be praying. I think most of you are aware we're looking for a pastor uh, of adults, so uh, please be praying and, uh, uh, about that process, and, and we're moving forward and, uh, and uh, anticipating uh, God's direction here and, and leading us to somebody. Now, it is so cool to be in Corinthians. I love y'all know working through these books because these words are filled with the life of God's love ultimately. So Paul's writing pretty passionately here to the Corinthians. And he's trying to encourage them to, to enthusiastically pursue Jesus. And he has this concern. Though he brought the gospel to them, and they embraced the gospel and, and, and committed to trusting Jesus, the culture is affecting them more than he would like. And he's concerned that some in the congregation might actually have more confidence about their relationship with Jesus than they actually ought to have. He's concerned that all of them don't actually have genuine Faith. So he's been unpacking this throughout the, the, the book. We got to chapter 8 and the manifestation that, that was not so good is they just weren't loving others like they should. Uh, you remember food offered to, to idols and though theologically it's okay, if that does damage to a brother or sister, you ought not eat it. Even though theologically it's okay because there's no God behind that. If you're not thinking and acting in love, you're sinning against Christ. Though you're theologically accurate. And he kept working through that. Last week, Keith dealt with the end of chapter 9 where Paul uses this metaphor of an athlete. Athletes train. Man, if there's any culture in the history of the world that ought to get this, this is ours. I was to my granddaughter's soccer game. And I remember what it was like when I was growing up and when I had kids and now grandkids. If you're in a sport, we expect you to show up. I don't actually think it's an unreasonable expectation. But Paul's point is, if people give so much to something with such a temporary benefit, how much more ought we be invested in the gospel where there's eternal benefit? He's not knocking those committed to sports. He's just saying, man, what a model for how we ought to approach our faith given all the benefits that come with loving Christ. Now, what he's going to do in the text this week is he's going to move on and he's going to compare the Corinthians and going to compare us to the Jews who were walking in the wilderness. And he's trying to help the Corinthians and us see there may be more similarities 
with those Jews as they wandered around in the desert for 40 years than we would like. And if the comparison is too close with us and those Jews, there's reason for concern. Now Paul's writing to the Corinthians and to us because he loves us. Because he loves us. And he wants us to be filled up with the hope of Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to look at 13 verses here today. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, that they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Father, there is life in you, and we desire to have our lives founded in your love. So I pray that you would use these words, which we believe were inspired by your Holy Spirit, to show us the life, the grace, the vitality, the love of Jesus. We pray ultimately here, Father, that you would speak to us, and you would touch our minds and our hearts with your love. So, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would desire us to hear and see. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul compared, is trying to compare the Jews of the Old Testament as they're wandering in the wilderness with the Corinthians and with us. And he starts this by showing that the Jews had extraordinary experiences with God. And not one of them, not just a few of them, but I want you to notice as we go through the text here, what Paul wants us to see is they all did, those folks who were rescued from Egypt. And he starts by demonstrating this, God saved them miraculously. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, the cloud that was before them and behind them. It's God's presence and his work. And all passed through the sea. You guys remember the story of the Red Sea? Egyptians are chasing him. They go through on dry ground, and then the Egyptians and the water comes on. Now, before that, we had the 10 plagues. You remember that? 
430 years of complaining and whining about being in bondage in Egypt. You guys remember this? This is what Paul is alluding to. 430 years of Lord, save us, save us, save us. And then God does in this extraordinary way. And all were baptized into Moses. Here, a figure of speech, I think, flowing from the water in the cloud and in the sea. What he's saying here is their destiny was connected to Moses' destiny as the leader. They were joined. And God was with them, and God saved them. Now, I'm going to tell you, if I walked through the Red Sea, I'm pretty confident I would never, ever doubt God. Might be a bit arrogant <laughs> for that conclusion. But here's what Paul is wanting the Corinthians and us to see. Beyond saving them miraculously, God provided for them miraculously. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They had this miraculous, God-ordained salvation. And all ate the same spiritual food. Now, I don't think he's saying here that there was something specially spiritual about the food. What he's trying to allude to, Paul, is here is nobody doubted where it came from. The manna fell from heaven. They weren't wondering if their work had created this manna. And all drank. Now, notice the alls here. All the alls. See all the alls. Paul's trying to make a point. All the people that were rescued had this benefit. All the people had this experience of God. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. What was that spiritual drink? Anybody want to remember when Moses hit the rock? And water came out of a rock. Here's what Paul's trying to say. The Jews had experiences of God like no people in the history of the world have ever had. God demonstrated his reality in practical, physical ways. I'm going to tell you, like nobody in the history of the world has ever seen anything like these guys saw. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink water and they had water on their trip. He provided for them all the time. For they drank from the spiritual rock, now metaphorical illusion, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, I don't think there's a little rock following him. He, he, he's a monotheist. Paul believes in one God. On his way to Damascus, you remember the bright light from heaven? Hey, Paul saw why are you persecuting me? And he goes, oh my, Jesus is real. Jesus is God. And he became a Trinitarian. Now, as he looks back, he realizes the Jews wouldn't have gotten it back then in terms of what was revealed to them. But Paul now understood when the Jews were walking through the wilderness, because there are three persons to this one God, Christ was there too. And he's telling these Corinthians, these folks got an spectacular experience of God. And the core was, Christ was with them. Well, if we could just get experiences like they had. Now, while we say that, let's not forget, life was not easy for them. They went on a 40-year camping trip without an RV. 
They didn't have the nice tents. They didn't have a Coleman stove. Now, their 40 years was a consequence of how they were interacting and living. But let's not miss this. They had spectacular displays of God, of his saving grace, of his provisions, of his presence. But their life was not easy, wandering in the wilderness. Now, we in the Corinthians have had extraordinary experiences of God as well. I don't know about you, but I've never seen water come from a rock or manna from heaven. I've never seen water actually parted. But God has been very good to us. He saved us. Think back to when it was that you came to commit your life to following him. It's every bit the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. When we see the truth of who Jesus is and how much he loves us and we yield to him and trust only in him, ah, our provisions... It may not be that obvious, but God is providing for us now just as he did for the Israelites when the manna fell from heaven. Now, I've noticed a pattern. When things are going well for us monetarily in terms of our resources, man alive, we are feeling good about our ability to provide. Then sometimes when we face the challenges of this life, all of a sudden, we become more conscious of God. God, why aren't you providing? When things are good, we tend to take, it feels like to me, a little more credit than we deserve, and he tends to get the blame when things aren't going exactly like we would like. But the reality is God's provided for us, and this is how he started the book. And this is the lens through which Paul expects we will see the entire book, never losing sight of this lens. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Guys, there's nothing better that he could give to us than his grace and the forgiveness that comes in Christ. That in every way you were enriched in him. How many ways? This is not hyperbole here. That's how expansive God's grace is. In every way, we've been enriched in Jesus. Folks, it does not get better than that. Now, you may conclude that Paul's concern is the Corinthians aren't living like they believe this. We're in the 10th chapter. This is the 10th chapter where he's trying to describe... I'm not so confident you guys are actually believing this. In all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. How many gifts are we lacking in? Can you imagine churches in America being filled up with that theology and actually believing it? What are we lacking? Nothing. Oh. 
as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, his second coming, and that Lord Jesus will sustain us until he comes back. And then we're going to be found guiltless on that day. And folks, there's nothing worse than not being found guiltless on that day. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians because he's afraid there are some of them that are not actually in this spiritual place. And his assessment is based upon the way they're living their lives. We will sustain you the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, come Lord Jesus. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing better. Absolutely nothing better. Jews' life was not easy. Neither is ours. Now, most of us aren't worried about having a roof over our head and too much food in the refrigerator. And the biggest problem we have is when we have to get our big screen TV fixed. But we got all the other challenges that they had. Relational challenges, when the people we love and care for don't necessarily respond in the way we would like. When things at work, our employment doesn't go quite the way we would like it to go. You guys probably haven't even noticed this one. So I hate to even bring it up because you might not have any context, but when government officials make decisions that don't please us. I don't think we have to wrestle with some of the basic things that the Jews had to wrestle with, but let's not miss this. People that haven't figured out that life is hard are not paying attention. And the difficulties come in a myriad of ways. Now, Paul's not emphasizing the difficulty of the Jews or the difficulty of the Corinthians or us because that's not his big point. But let's understand in this context of how good God has been to us, that doesn't remove the challenges of life. But here's where Paul turns the corner in verse 5. All the Jews had this experience. God's miraculous salvation, God's miraculous provision. And because of that, they assumed they were good. How could you not be good if God's doing all this stuff for you? Well, the Jews thought they were good. What Paul wants us to see, they were not actually good with God. And God judged them. And they didn't get to go into the promised land. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, which was, and the rock was Christ. Oh, how good is that? They turned the corner right here with one word that's actually three that you can put together in English. How cool is this? 
turns the corner now. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. I don't think there's much understatement in the scriptures, but I see this as an understatement. Anybody remember who actually got to go into the promised land? Joshua and Caleb and those born in the wilderness. Now, folks, remember the radical testimony that God had given to who he was and how he cared for them. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They actually never left. Because they didn't trust God. Paul's illustrating this. There's one thing and one thing only God wants from us. One thing. One. Trust. He just wants us to trust him. Now, how much of the time do you think God wants us to trust him? All the time. The Jews thought they were good. God had done some spectacular things for him, for them. They assumed they were good. The problem was at the core, they weren't actually trusting God. Now, Paul is comparing the Jews with some in the Corinthian church because he's afraid they're in the same place, thinking they're good, but not actually trusting him. He's trying to pull that apart. They desired evil. Now, What's the flip side of desiring evil? If desiring evil is one side of the coin, the other side of the coin is simply this, trusting God. Desiring evil is quite simply just not trusting God. That's the crux of what evil is. Not trusting him and not believing in him. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate and drank the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did, that we wouldn't live with the same distrust of God that they did. Now, I think he's talking here specifically about 40 years generally, but he's got one uh, event particularly after Mount Sinai. Anybody remember the golden calf kind of thing? Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God. They'd just been rescued, and they came down, and there was a big golden calf. <laughs> Let me assure you, building golden calves is not good. And the people complained. Desired evil is the way it's translated in the ESV in Corinthians. I think the word could be translated craved evil, and, and that's the way it's translated in numbers, is craved. But if you allow craved and desire to be the same word, everybody with me? Because I think this is most specifically what Paul's referencing. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Let me summarize what they're saying. Thanks for rescuing us, but this pretty much stinks. The circumstances are not up to our liking. Sure, 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 the whole Red Sea deal, big deal. What have you done for me lately? A little manna? 
In the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of the place that uh, was called uh, uh, Taberah, and that I think just means fire, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble, I love this, that was among them had a strong craving or strong desire. This is what I'm pretty confident Paul's alluding to in 1 Corinthians 10. They had a strong craving, and the people of the Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, and the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Let me summarize it this way. Is this all there is for dinner? Again, thanks for the rescue, thanks for the manna, but Lord, what are you doing? Remember the good old days in Egypt? You gotta love this. How short are our memories? Oh, that was great back there in Egypt. (laughs) They desired, they craved evil. They didn't trust God. And they were idolaters. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. They pursued immediate temporal pleasures. These are all indications of not trusting God. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. Doesn't sound like a bad life to me. (laughs) Sounds fun. Sexual immorality. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. This is just a list of the ways that not trusting God displayed. This is not comprehensive, just dealing with, I think, some specific ones of the Jews and specific ones that the Corinthians were, were dealing with. Again, the cool part is it probably doesn't apply to us. And they were not satisfied with God's provision. They didn't like the way this was coming down. Paul tells us they put Christ to the test. He's putting Christ to the test. It's not being satisfied with what God had done for him. And they grumbled. There's supposed to be another text in there. There it is. Boy, I'm too fast with this thing. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. You remember that? The serpents came. Nor grumble. Grumbling, I think, yeah. Lots of signs of not trusting God. Grumbling? And I think we can grumble without it being audible. 
like God's able to see what's going on in us. As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now we can wrestle with who the destroyer is. I think three basic options. Satan. I think it's not Satan. I think it's more likely an angel of God or God himself. I lean towards, and this is just one of those exegetically, interpretively, that I think is hard to figure out. I think most likely it's an angel. God wouldn't reference himself as the destroyer, but it's an angel who came from God, like back there in the Egypt in the 10th plague. But the big idea is, these people thought they were good with God, and they were not, and they got destroyed. Paul wants the Corinthians and us to understand we're vulnerable to the same temptations as they are, to not trust in God. To desire to crave evil, to chase idols. Now, I don't think most of us are chasing the idols that they were chasing. How many of you have been interested in building a golden calf? May I see your hands? I think today it more looks like the nice car, the professional success, Oh, getting our kids successful. You know? None of those things, bad things in and of themselves, where they become dangerous is where they become more important to us than God intends they be. But what are the idols in our life? Countless. For some, I think it's just sitting and watching TV for hours on end just makes us satisfied. Pursue immediate temporal pleasures. I will tell you in the history of the world, nobody has seen God's display of his saving power and of his, uh, of his provisions like the Jews been back then. Nobody has more immediate temporal pleasures available to us than us. I'm going to tell you, if that was a problem back then and a temptation back then, just extend that exponentially to 2021. Does God want us to rest and relax and enjoy life? Yep, but I will tell you, we are culture uh, like the world has never seen. Uh, Neil Postman wrote a book about 30, 40 years ago, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He hadn't seen the light of day in that area. You want to talk about temptations today, they are endless. Now, how many of you are going to go home and watch an NFL game? Because if you're watching the Vikings, that does not count in this area. And thank Goodness for what's happening with our Rams. I am now a loyal Ram fan and the Vikings, forget them. They're one and two. But again, sports does not fit. You guys understand that in the temporal pleasures. Sexual immorality. Guys, the temptations around us, again, exponentially greater. The ease with which, again, you guys have heard of the internet and some of the stuff that's available there. I was in Seattle, Julie and I, last weekend. We're walking down a street, uh, driving down a street at 9.30 in the morning like Imperial here in Brea, and there were street walkers out there because of what's happening with the police in Seattle, which they're not that involved. <laughs> they are less involved in what's going on. There are street walkers at 9.30, and when you drove by, you didn't wonder what they did for a living. I've never seen anything like this at a street in America. And it has become just life there in Seattle. Y'all know this, right? Not to be satisfied with God's provision. Put Christ to the test and grumble. The cool thing is, I haven't heard any grumbling in America in the last two years. Have you guys heard any grumbling? Wondering what in the world God's allowing? 
Now, there's a holy discontent where we would like to have things different, and I think working as instruments of God's grace to make things better. But at least in my spirit, I can feel when that crosses over to an unholy discontent, and there's a loss of joy and an increase of anger and frustration that illustrates I'm not trusting God as much. So this isn't just passivity. Don't hear me promoting that. But an inner contentment that gets lost because circumstances are not what we would like. These are not, in case you're not following along, these are not positive signs for those who trust God. Being involved, working for change, promoting godly values and godly character, absolutely. And we're told about the Jews, I hope this part is obvious, so that we might learn from them. And the big idea here is we should all be assessing our faith. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example for us. But they were written down for our instruction so we don't make the same mistake the Jews made. On whom the end of the age is to come, the end of the age before Jesus comes back. The Corinthians were in that, we're in that. From Jesus' arrival, first time, to his second coming. That's the reference time. And this is the big idea of, of these verses. And to some degree, I really believe the big idea of the book. He's implied this several times as we've moved through it. As he writes to the Corinthians and I think to us. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, thinks they're good with God, take heed lest he fall. There's too much at stake here to not be paying attention. I don't think examining our, I think not examining our faith and where we stand is a bad sign. I think if our confidence that we're right with God is based upon some experience we had months, years, or maybe even decades ago, that's not good theology. All God wants from us is to have faith. He just wants us to be on this ongoing journey with him. And that maybe started with a spectacular experience. I got married 41 years ago. And here's how I know I love my wife. I love her more today than I did 41 years ago. And it's better today than it was 41 years ago. And there's still a bunch about her I do not understand. But that's what relationships look like. And not making assessments, not asking where am I and trusting God is not a healthy sign. Recognizing we have room to grow in our faith is a good sign. I'm guessing pretty much daily, some days more than that, my emotions reveal to me that I could trust God more than I do. 
There's this frustration, this discontent. Sometimes I know it's hard to believe, but maybe even a little anger and deep disappointment. For me, there's a holy part to that, and then there's an unholy part to that. And I feel like I know now when I'm crossing that line in my heart, when I interact with others in ways that I regret the need to apologize for. But recognizing and apologizing, it is a great sign. I fairly regularly talk to people who, when they're making an examination of their life, express deep disappointment and frustration in themselves. And I'm like, I think you're in a great place. My concern is for the people that aren't making any evaluations. You're actually recognizing. I'm trying to get people to do what you're doing, which is recognize wherever they are in this journey, there is room to grow. That's a good thing. Now, beating ourselves up with that is not healthy because there's no work salvation in this whatsoever. This is about saved by faith and faith alone. But Paul's trying to unpack through this book what genuine faith looks like. We're in this section right now where he happens to be focused on loving others. If we love God and understand how much he loves us, that gets expressed. And asking God to help us trust him more is, I think, a brilliant thing to do. Lord, I love you, but I need your help to help me love you more. But I love you, Lord. But keep me on that path and keep me growing. We should not be rationalizing or succumbing to our temptations. Famous verse here that I think gets misunderstood because it's not always taken in context. Now, these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There's the big idea. Let's be making an assessment to make sure we don't fall. I don't want anybody associated with RCC to fall. Not one. How do we prevent that? We actually take heed. And then he goes into verse 13, the beginning of it. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now, Paul... He understands humans because he is one, and I think he's trying to get us to quit rationalizing and justifying our succumbing to temptation. I think we can tend to go, it's okay to give in to temptation. And again, I'm just quoting other people because I really don't know about these temptations personally. You understand that, right? I'm looking out here, and I've gotten these ideas from many of you because I really don't know what it's like to rationalize your own sin just too tough for me to resist. I just can't do it. I just don't have it within me. You know, what I face actually is more than what Dan faces. It's more than what Steve faces. Well, it's definitely worse than Johnny. These guys just aren't dealing with the same sort of level of temptation that I face. So, it's okay. It's a really tough time in my life. Facing a lot of difficult things. And the magnitude of all these challenges, it's okay for me to give in to this temptation now. 
I think Paul's saying to us, don't fall into that trap set by the evil one. None of us is facing any temptation that the rest of us are facing. We're all in the same boat. Then he ends with his hope. And we can always count on God to be with us in the fight of temptation. Notice where he's brought this. Do this analysis. But don't miss where he ends. Guys, we ain't alone in this. We are not battling by ourselves. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Make an assessment. But have this truth be the foundation. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. Oh, Lord, thank you for his faithfulness. Go back and read the Old Testament. You know how many times he forgave the Jews? Oh, man, over and over and over and over and over and over again. He loves us. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He is with us. His Holy Spirit dwells within us. Now, is it a fight? Raise your hand if you have not been tempted to crave evil, to not trust God in something. May I see your hand? Because we are going to become best friends, (laughs) and I'm going to figure out what you have. So let's finish it here. This is not popular among evangelical conversation. It doesn't sell well. But we're in a war for our spiritual lives, folks. There is an evil one out there that wants to keep us out of heaven. And if he can't keep us out of heaven, he wants to diminish our joy in this life. And he commits 100% of his time and 100% of his energy towards that. One day the fight's going to be over, but it ain't yet. This is a fight. The Jews out there in 40 years after their spectacular demonstrations of God's salvation and his providence and his provision did not do well. Paul writes because he didn't want the Corinthians and he doesn't want us to fall into that same trap. But let's just start. This is a war to trust God. If your life is not hard again, I'd like to visit with you. If you can't find any difficulties or challenges in your life, wait till tomorrow. We'll fight until Jesus returns. Now, we're not fighting those who are still in bondage to Satan. You guys are hearing me, right? We're trying to rescue the people that are unmistakably in the hands of Satan. We're trying to rescue them. So when I say fight, don't use this verb against other people. We're trying to live in a way that those other people see that we love Jesus, but we're going to fight until Jesus returns. Or there's one other exception to that that I thought about putting in there, but I didn't put it in there. What's the other exception? We die before he gets back. (laughs) Let me assure you, if you die, you're done with this fight. So we'll grieve the loss of you, but we will not grieve for you. Because you're not going to have to live in this mess anymore. It'll be done. The rest of us, we fight. 
that we die or Jesus comes back. And we're never going to be perfect in this age. Paul's given this general warning, but don't ever think we're going to be sinless. Those folks who are wrestling with the sin in their lives and not trusting God as much as they could, I think that's a fabulous place to be. And then, because we're sitting there going, we're missing joy. I could be even happier. Lord, help me to trust you even more in this. There's our life. We have Jesus empowering us to fight. I just don't think we always turn to him as often as we could. We go to him when we're really desperate. We're trying to build here this idea that we go to him regularly before that. And then we have others who treasure Jesus. That's us, one another. That's this church family. Guys, we are here to help us all move forward in this journey of faith. Are we here to condemn one another? No. Are we here to thump one another with the Bible? No. We are here to help one another in this war, to fight together against the evil one, against the enemy, not any person, human person. But look at this. God's put us together to help one another in this. My prayer would be that nobody connected with RCC would fall. Not one. And that's why we're here. Now, I think there's joy in this fight. But the key is keeping our eyes focused on Jesus and not being too distracted by the other stuff. I've referenced the other stuff in the last several weeks. Do you know what I'm referencing in the other stuff? The world is messed up. Lots of things going on. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Lord, you are good. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for revealing your grace to us. Thanks for being faithful. Thanks for promising to sustain us. We pray you continue to use us with one another, in one another's lives, to lift up and to encourage we pray that your grace would be increasingly experienced in us and displayed by us. This world is challenging. Lots of things, lots of difficulties, individually, within our families, within our culture. Oh, Lord, politics, COVID response. There is just no end to what's going on in our world. But you are the rock that was with the Jews. And you're the rock that is with us. I pray, Father, as we tend to be, are tempted to be distracted from you, to be tempted to go to areas of life for quick fix and quick pleasure, I pray that you would keep our eyes focused on you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your indwelling. Thank you for your guiding us. I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that you would fill us and baptize us with your spirit. May the reality of who you are and who we are in you, may that be the foundation and the key to how we live, Father. That's our prayer. And we ask in the name of the rock.